turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm actually going to pick up on the very last verse of chapter 12 when we read it in just a moment. I was counting up the weeks. It's been since March 15th since we've had an in-person gathering. Even for those that were willing to come out, it's been since March 15th. And you're very much similar to the crowd that was here on March 15th. Those that, that felt that they could take the risk of, of being around other people. Those that didn't feel that being in a gathering like this compromised their, their health or, or their conscience. Uh, so March 15th, if you count them up, that means March 22nd, March 29th. And then there was one, two, three, four Sundays in April and the first one in May. So it's been seven Sundays with no spectators, no members, no listeners. I'd tell you, preaching into that camera... That is a different kind of discipline. It is a different kind of discipline. It is. And if you're joining us that way because based on your conscience and good, uh, good decision-making, you're not here, we welcome you by watching that way. We know it's not the same as being in person, and we don't pretend that it is. However, uh, we want to provide a Facebook live stream for the percentage of our congregation that feels it's best for them to continue not to be around social gatherings. If you follow the governor's guidance, they've laid out a stages of a plan for reopening society for business and this, that, and the other. And I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of it, but what little bit that I have gathered as it pertains to places of worship and to school settings is that they have, um, they have a, a, a tiered approach to getting the schools back opened up. I think it's July 1st for that. And they have for churches, we can meet, but the guidance is that we practice certain social distancing. And uh, so we're trying, to, we're trying to honor the gathering authorities in the way that we're doing this. We know that people's consciences range from not very concerned at all whatsoever to extremely concerned based on the people that are here. We know that. And it is very important to the leadership of this church that we seek to pursue the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, like Ephesians 4.3 says. So that means that we, if we're not very bothered, we're sensitive to those that are bothered. and We don't run up and give them a big old neck hug. That means if we're, if we're really, really sensitive, we try to be understanding with people that uh, just don't, they just have convinced in their own mind that come what may will come and they're not too worried about it. Or maybe they, they think that there's some aspects of this that, that, uh, that are not, shouldn't be as concerning as they, as they appear to be. So I, I don't pretend to sort through all of that. Uh, that is beyond what God has called me to do. What I ask you to do on behalf of the elders of the church is to seek unity, to seek unity. Uh, there was a similar time like this in um, the advent of the Spanish flu in 1918. And the context for that season was the end of the First World War. Trench warfare was established. It was one of the worst times in, in American warfare history, upside the Civil War. It was awful. Um, death could be prolonged. And we're just far enough removed from it, a little over 100 years, that we can even talk about it. For many years, it would have been insensitive for me to even talk about it from a pulpit. For many of us, have great-great-grandfathers that uh, were, were maimed or perished in that great battle, that, what they call the Great War, World War I. Well, at that time, the so-called flu, the Spanish flu, broke out. And similarly to where we are 102 years later, churches were asked not to convene for a season. And almost all churches obliged. On the first Sunday back, or in, in, the, in the meaning of the first Sunday back, a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Francis Grimke 
wrote about the hardship of churches being closed for a season. I want to share his words with you. He said, The fact that for several weeks we have been shut out from the privileges of the sanctuary has brought home to us as never before what the church has really meant to us. We hadn't thought, perhaps, very much of the privilege while it lasted. But the moment it was taken away, we saw at once how much it meant to us. One of the gratifying things to me during this scourge has been the sincere regrets that I have heard expressed all over the city by numbers of people at the closing of the churches. The theater goers, of course, have regretted the closing of the theaters. I don't know whether the children of the teachers have regretted the closing of the schools or not. I've heard no regrets expressed, but I do know that large numbers of people have regretted the closing of the churches. I hope that now they are, that they are reopened again, we will all show our appreciation of their value by attending regularly upon their services. It would be a great calamity to any community to be without the public ministrations of the sanctuary. There is no single influence in a community that counts for more than the Christian church, Grimke wrote. It is one of the institutions particularly that ought to be strongly supported, that ought to be largely attended, and that ought to have hearty endorsement and well wishes of every right-thinking man and woman within it. It is the great mistake. It is a great mistake for anyone to stand aloof from the Christian church. And indeed... The church gathered is the church. And we, when we attend the church, we give it a hearty endorsement. The influence of a church in the community is important. And on this occasion, Mother's Day, we gather with the opportunity to reflect upon what a beautiful, beautiful gift God gave us in giving us mothers Regardless of the quality of your mother in your own mind, every single person in this room has to have had a mother. You had to have been born of a mother. Now, social engineering may cause that statement to be a little bit more qualifiable 30 or 40 years from now. But right now, I believe we can say with great confidence that every single one of us has a mother. Mother's Day is a holiday that, though it's not on the Christian calendar, it ought to be on the hearts of every single Christian. And for today's sermon, I want to try to use motherhood as a kind of catch illustration for what I think the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to communicate to us from 2 Corinthians 13. And here's what it is. A good mother, a good mother, like a good father, like a good parent, has a vision for the maturity of their children. A good mother, a good parent, has a vision for the maturity of their children. Now, as we sat here this morning, we're endeavoring to keep this service to under an hour for the simple fact that you're sitting with every child you got. We don't have children's ministry. Uh, you're, it's, there's going to be noises made uh, without any, any kind of judgment going on toward that and whatnot. Uh, but I want to say this morning, as you look at your family setting there, it makes a great object lesson for what we want to communicate with God's help this morning from His Word. And that is that a wise parent, a loving parent, has a vision for the maturity of their children. They don't exasperate their children by putting everything at DEFCOM 5. They choose their words, and they choose the volume of their words, right? What does a what does good motherhood teach us? Of course, correction, but, but not in a way that's, that's hasty or self-gratifying. The parent 
that gets gratification out of correcting a child needs to take a hard look in the mirror. The church never stands for abuse, but the church ought not stand either for haphazard parenting that produces little hellions. For that little kid that has outbursts in the aisles of the grocery store and constantly throws tantrums in the home will prove to be a great menace to society. Amen? So we have this delicate balance in a Genesis 3 fallen world. That each of us has this plight as parents or supporters of parents. If you're single or don't have children of your own, we have children in the church. And we ought to be able to draw the parallel as children of God. Every single one of us, shouldn't we? The parallel that our divine parent has a vision for the maturity of his children. Do you agree with that? Now, it's one thing for you to say you agree with it. But you understand there are ramifications for your assent. Your parent has a vision for your maturity. The same as you should, as a good parent, as a good mother, have a vision for the maturity of your children. And what that means is that there are certain modes and methods of operation that you take when sometimes you can't really be understood by the watching world, meaning this. Sometimes a kid gets away with something because you know the bigger picture for that kid's life, right? And you just don't crack it. You just don't crack down on them. And in sometimes a relatively small infraction is judged more harshly by you because of the fact you understand the trajectory, you understand the, the dynamic with that child, and you are pleased to help that child move toward maturity by saying that is not tolerated in this family. Do you understand that? that that's not tolerated in this family. So you, you count on a parent, not perfectly because we're humans, but you count on a parent to make those kinds of judgment calls. And that's why as parents, we have to really look in the mirror and ask the Lord to cleanse us, to rend our hearts, to take the, the plank out of our own eyes so we can see the speck in someone else's eyes. We should never correct our children in rank anger or for some self-gratification. Never correct our children to impose uh, some kind of strength that we don't have in any other arena of life on them. We should correct our children with purposeful intent to see that they be mature. That's really the purpose of what we do together as a church. This divine building project is about, as Colossians 1.28 says, presenting every member, every one of us, mature in Christ on the day of the Lord. It's to present us mature. That's the goal. God has for his children the goal of maturity, and his means to get it done is us. It's not a celebrity group of paid pastors in a church. It's not simply lay elders in a church. It's not even the leaders in any church. Our conviction in this church is that the Bible conveys that it is everyone's responsibility to see that everyone in the membership of the church is presented as mature on the day of the Lord. Now, certainly leaders in the church are to be exemplars in aiming for that maturity. Certainly leaders in the church are to pave the way in getting toward that maturity. But you will never tolerate the kind of means and modes that it takes to present a child mature You'll never make the sacrifices that it takes, the, the sleepless nights, the early wakefulness, the lack of food, the working through meals. You'll never do it. You won't put forth that kind of serious crying out prayer, not tacit prayers, but like, God, help me. I don't know how in the world this kid's ever going to be mature. I need your help. You won't go there if you don't first have the aim that maturity is the direction. You won't go there. 
if you think it's not your responsibility as a parent, then you won't, you won't actually make the hard decisions. I want you to know something. The shape of love for a child, the shape of love is discipline. Now, that's not like a heavy-handed, it's not a heavy-handed discipline, but the Lord demonstrates this for us in this way. He says in Hebrews 12, He disciplines those He loves. If He loves you, He's about the business of disciplining you. You understand? And He draws on these metaphors from parenting over and over and over again. So to be loved is to be disciplined. And to be disciplined is to be loved in God's economy. Now, imperfectly as parents, I know that. Mother's Day gives us an opportunity to look at this building project being built up with one another as something that God not only allows us to participate in, but mandates that we participate in. Without further ado, let's read our text today. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, all the way through chapter 13, verse 11, focusing in on verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. This is the Apostle Paul preparing to make his third visit. He says, when I come again, my my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn, may have to cry over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced, have not repented. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Specifically talking about their coming again to see them. They were providentially hindered from that. I think that's what it's talking about. Not failed from meeting the test. Verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. Aim for restoration, brothers and sisters. Comfort one another. Agree with one another, brothers and sisters. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. Now, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, through chapter 13, verse 11. You need those header and footer verses, I think, to understand our focus text today, which is chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Like a good parent, they see the trajectories in their children and address small cases before they become big 
and this is for our blessing. We can see in the big picture of not having a deviant young adult with few life skills what our aim should be for maturity. By looking at the big picture, we know how to function in the smaller situation without heavy-handed authoritarianism or without a lackadaisical attitude. The key is to see discipline as part of an overall picture, part of an overall strategy to free and not to chain your child, to refresh, not to exasperate your child. Teaching them the Lord's commands is sincere. It's not severe. And the most severe discipline may not have to be used at all if we discipline one another a little bit all along. Take care of the little bit all along instead of waiting for someone else to have to deal with the big problem at a later date and time. Now, when we look at this text, and I'd like to ask you to look down at your Bible if you have it with you there open or on your phone or whatnot. Look at at chapter 13, verse 1, because I'm going to look with you now at three things from this text. In the very first verse, we're going to see the final step of the warnings. And the second thing we're going to see in verses 2 through 5 is the purpose of the warnings. And the third thing we're going to see in verse 6 and following is our hope and prayer in the warning. So we'll see the final step of the warnings in verse 1. Then in verse 2 and following, we're going to see the purpose of the warnings. And then we're going to back our way into our hope and prayer for the warnings in verse 6 and following. So first thing here, let's see the final step of the warnings. The final step of the warnings. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I come, I'm coming to you. Every charge... Every charge, notice the formality of that language. Every charge must be established by the evidence of witnesses. Two or three, not just one. Witnesses. So not just accusations, but every charge must be be established by the evidence or the mouth, the spoken testimony of witnesses. So gaining clarity logically, judiciously, is important. Just judges are a gift to the people. Unjust judges are a curse to the people. Christians are not to judge the world so much as... The Christians are to judge worldliness in the church. We are judges first of ourselves, then of close ones that we're with with one another within the church. And that's the shape of love, is that we have a parental attitude toward the growth of one another in the church. Differently, each member is responsible to know the truth and to share it with one another in the church. And so, therefore, we pursue agreement in the truth. This idea of two or three witnesses is borrowed from the law of Moses and imposed on the New Covenant church. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of, notice this, two witnesses or or three witnesses shall a charge be established. See, he's borrowing that straight from there. Let me finish the Deuteronomy passage because it brings to light what's going on in the Corinthians passage much, much later. Deuteronomy, way, way back, 1500, 1400 B.C. We're now in the first century A.D. in the local church, and it's more our context is for us. But he's taking this law of Moses concept and, and imposing it on the law of Christ for the church. So listen to what, what the Apostle Paul, who has the authority to do this, says about these two or three witnesses. He says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. Now, that's a pretty big deterrent against a false witness, isn't it? You're going to get the punishment 
of what you thought that other brother should have, punishment should have been if you prove to be a false witness. So we have a lot of incentive in this context not to be false witnesses, not to be quick triggered with the accusation. One of the reasons that they want two or three witnesses before something comes to the judicial courtroom of the church to put it in New Covenant parlance. And so that's what it says about it. It says, and you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So it's meant to be a deterrent. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be a life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now there's things that don't carry forward because we're not a theocracy, right? We don't have it, not in the sense of God rule and never has there been any kings in between. And, and there is not sense of, of judgment within the church that begins with the house of God, like what first, Peter 4, 17 says. And so in a new covenant context, with this being imposed, we see in the verses we read from Hebrews and the verses we read from 2 Corinthians and a few other verses we're going to piece together here, we see a theology by which the way we apply this passage today is not with actual governmental killing. That's not our authority. Romans 13 says that the governing authorities wield the sword. What we do is within the church membership, when we have credible evidence of someone on the membership not acting like a member of the bride of Christ, harming Christ's name out there, misrepresenting Christ, sinning with a kind of negligence and lack of concern for repentance that is characteristic and is known. And we're going to see here, especially sexual sin. That has to be addressed in the church if the church is credibly going to have an aim toward the maturity of the children. Because if, he, if, if not, then we, don't, we can't really claim that our aim is the same as Jesus's. And I intend to prove that over the course of this sermon. So he's borrowing from Deuteronomy. And on the witnesses side of it, let's look forward now from Deuteronomy forward to the gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Now, these are the words of Jesus. So we've moved from the law and the prophets all the way forward in our canon of scripture to the words of Jesus in the gospels. And so Jesus, of course, instituting the new covenant in his own blood, then has this to say in Matthew 18, 16 through 20 about the nature of judicial proceedings in the church. The nature of judicial proceedings in the church. So listen to it that way. Matthew 18, 16 through 20. But if he does not listen, that is one that's credibly accused, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see that language, you know what it's coming from now, right? If he refuses to listen to them, to the witnesses, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile tax collector. In other words, let him be as not a member of the community, a member of the church. This is how it's applied in the new covenant. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, anything about any, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, that verse is often ripped out of context to say, when we got three people gathered in a building and we're having church. That's really not what that means. This is clearly referencing two or three witnesses and the judicial proceedings of the church. And particularly, as I've said in this point, our first point of three, the final step for unrepentant minority of members in the church is judicial proceedings. Witness calling. This, that's what this is, is witness calling the church. This is utterly distasteful to us. But if we have it as the aim 
to see the children of God presented mature on the day of the Lord. If we have it as our aim that the members would have assurance of eternal life as their day draws near, that they would have joy in their salvation, that they would have a pure gospel witness in the community, not a perfect witness, but a pure witness. The pursuit of holiness would be our aim. Our aim would be Jesus' aim, like Colossians 1.28 says, that we would be presenting every single member in a community building project together. We'd be presenting all the members on the day of the Lord as mature, Colossians 1.28, not immature. Now, a lot of things about the way we handle our business would be different if our aim was maturity, Right? That's what I'm advocating for today, is that we think that way about it. Now, Jesus is talking about, in Matthew 18, he's talking about this, this two or three witness language. Jump back to Matthew 16 and look briefly at verses 15 through 19. This is a classic passage. We love this passage of Scripture from Jesus in the Gospels. We use this all the time to talk about the Lord building his church. But church discipline remains ever a part of the Lord building his church. Differently, discipline in your life, self-imposed, becomes ever a part of the grace that God is meeting out for the believers. Look at Matthew 15, 15 through 19. I'm sorry, Matthew 16, 15 through 19. This is where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied to Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, what does it say? I'm going to build my church. And it says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, that language is the same as Matthew 18 in the courtroom proceedings, the judicial proceedings of church discipline amongst the members of the church. This binding and loosing, this authority, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is giving it to the church, to the church members, and that's part of Jesus' plan for building the church. His project for building the church is that we would be in the grime of one another's lives, helping one another to grow in the faith way before the judicial proceedings ever happen, way before the courtroom of church discipline is ever even thought of. We're involved in one another's lives to the point that you know what's going on in my life, I know what's going on in your life, and we're being discipled or matured in Christ. That's the Great Commission. And Jesus says to end this Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to him, and so he gives it to his apostles and by extension to all of us, by saying, all authority has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always, unto the end of the, even unto the end of the age. He's with us always in what? In the distribution of this authority to fulfill the Great Commission by teaching all the believers to obey all that Jesus commands. That's what we're about. That's the Great Commission. To look at the Great Commission as just a marketing ploy for gathering up all the people you can and shoving them inside a place that's called a church is a great aberration of the Great Commission. The Great Commission comes with the great commandment to love one another, and the great commandment to love one another comes with the great demand that we discipline one another. It's all wrapped up in the Gospel of Matthew. And when we grab texts of proof out of context, we are for the poorer. Jesus not only wants his church to be built, he wants it to be built according to his architectural specifications, which is that we have our aim to present every member mature. In Christ. Now, this has its finds its heyday in Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 11, we see a case study 
more particularly the sin of sexual immorality, which is still a problem with a small minority in the church by 2 Corinthians 12, 21. But here we have a case study where there's, there's a problem with a man that is sexually sinning and will not repent. He won't pass the test, which is repentance. And it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so the assembly, the church, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, this particularly unrepentant, sexual, sinful man that would not listen to wise counsel when patiently over and over asked to repent. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose of that discipline was for that brother by being put out of the church and all the blessings that come from the church would on the day of the Lord be saved. So it's for the brother. It says, your boasting is not good. First Corinthians chapter five says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So it's for all the other members too, so it doesn't work its way through. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity of truth and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Remember, I told you that's a particular sin in view. That's sort of the first sin we have to attack in order to be faithful to this judicial aspect of the church. It says, I wrote you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral in the world or the greedy, the swindlers, idolaters, since you need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you now not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, indifferently, who's a member of the church, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, an idolater, a viler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. I presume that means eating the Lord's Supper. Verse number 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And everybody's category distinction just got blown out of the water, right? Right? So, so if you've been misusing judge not lest you be judged, what, there's supposed to be judicial proceedings in the church? You've got to be kidding me, right? And I think the critical thing to understand here is, is that judicial proceedings is about the we, it's not about the me. I think that's the pivotal part of it. It's about the we, it's not about the me. Judicial proceedings is not about the quickest way I can get the problem to go away. It's not about Amish social shunning of an individual that's made a mistake. That's not what the, the judicial we is about. It's about we are so concerned with this aim that Jesus gave us to build the Lord's house by seeing every member presented mature on the day of the Lord. And no one lacking salvation and joy in this project. We're so consumed with it in terms of spiritual things, just as we would be consumed with seeing our children presented as mature adults in this life. So we want to see all of God's children in this membership presented as mature on the day of the Lord. We're so concerned with it that we're willing to do the hard together. We're willing to get into it. So you'll never do that without the aim, without the big picture aim. You'll never do the hard. But Jesus has left us not just with a mandate to do the harm, but the hard, but with the kinds of structure that we need in order to do the hard with the least amount of severity, the least amount of harshness as possible. That's what this is about. The Apostle Paul, is, he is so slow. It's the end of the books of Corinthians before he writes like this this way. He, he writes about what they're to do with this one individual person. But this kind of stock, you still got people on your membership that's sexually sinning, and I don't want to have to deal with them, so I hope they repent, but I will if I need to when I get there. This is not most of you. The way 2 Corinthians 13 ends is a far quiet cry from quick-triggered, heavy-handed, I'm so glad to be able to discipline someone in the church type of an action. It's just not. It's a false charge. There are these droppings every step of the way 
for how this aim prevents us from ever having to get to the judicial proceedings of the church. So the way this ends here, it is not those inside the church whom you are to judge, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is most come in the church right now. That's where it's supposed to be most visible. Is the church scattered all over the, all over the earth? Every single local church is supposed to rightly reflect the witness of Jesus. And so we need to be preaching by the way that we structure and conduct our affairs as well as our words. We need to be preaching that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived. Particularly, what does it mean to be unrighteous? Don't be deceived. Don't be lacking truth. Neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Notice how many of these are related to sexual sins right out of the top, right? Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You used to be that, but you're not now. So if you're still actively, characteristically, knowing to the public going through sexual sins, just doing it, just poking Jesus in the eye, then we'd be like tolerating Jezebel like the churches in Revelation did if we just don't ever say anything about that. I mean, it is a hateful little thing. It's partnership with the devil to not say something about that. As I've preached through Corinthians, and we've come to the very end of 2 Corinthians, I've come to appreciate the fact that this book and the Bible, frankly, front loads sexual sins. It front loads it in the listings. It front loads sexual sins. Why? I don't know for sure, but I have some suggestions. I think that if we don't have, I think sexual sins are generally the most in your face, I don't care. It's harder to pinpoint gossip and slander and right, reviling. I mean, you got to have like circumstantial evidence all across the way to get there. So you build muscle by dealing with the most obvious, egregious, public, in-your-face, poke-you-in-the-eye sins, right? And, and that's what sexual sin is, unless it's in hiding. I mean, if, if, you, if you take someone that's not your spouse ever, and then just say to everybody, I don't care, that's a big old egregious sexual sin, isn't it? Apostle Paul says you don't deal with it. You're in violation of what it means to be a church. If you take a same-sex partner and you just take that to the house, you don't struggle with it, you don't repent of it, you don't ask for help with it, and that's your, that's your life, then what you've done is sexually sinned in the front-loaded listing of sins in the Bible. And if the church just says, well, you know, teach their own, what the church has done effectively is no longer have the aim of, of pursuing every member to be presented before Christ on the day of judgment in God's divine building project as mature. It said effectively, I, I'm not really, that's not really my aim. I, you know what? I make church the way I want to make church, but the way Jesus told me to make church and the apostles, ah, uh-uh, that's, too, that's too hard for me. If you think it's harder for us to pursue maturity today than it was in first century Rome, you don't know history. That would mean the catacombs and hiding stuff because they could be killed for being Christians. Nero used them as tree posts in the AD 60s. Paul got his head lopped off for it. Likely Peter got crucified upside down because they're pursuing this sexual maturity within the church and they're doing it relentlessly in the church. Purity, 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 purity. And at the same time, they're having to deal with people all around that just doesn't understand. But they must insist that in the church, in the judicial proceedings of a church, that the members understand. They must understand this purity pursuit. 
And you know, sometimes they do if you just tell them. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, very briefly, verses 5 through 11, it says of somebody that has sinned like this, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not, not to put it so severely to all of you. Let me just tell you real quick. If you get serious about this aim of maturing one another and you get in the grime of one another's lives, I'm going to tell you right now, when you have a, an unrepentant sinner that pushes the envelope through their thick-headedness to the point that they have to face the courtroom of the church discipline, I'm going to tell you what, that person causes pain to everybody in the church. Pain to everybody in the church. Everybody in the church hurts if we all share this covenant membership aim of pursuing maturity in Christ. Everybody hurts. And this passage shows that. Verse 5 says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, or might say it has been enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So this is about the aim of restoration of the wayward brother or sister. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for this one that's apparently come back to the fold and repented finally, as thick-headed as he must have been. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. So the church has this authority in the we, not the me, of forgiving repentant members that formerly were not and had to be excommunicated in the most harsh sense, in the, in the worst sense. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for, the, for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan wants to outwit us in getting us not to pursue this maturity, and he wants to outwit us by getting us not to help somebody that's actually repented find their way back into the fold. What happens is, once we finally cross the Rubicon and decide we'll do church discipline, we don't ever want to let anybody back in. That's hogwash. What the Bible says is letting them back in is one of the most beautiful pictures of the grace of God in Christ that you can ever have because they harmed you. You're the one that had to push that thick-headed brother all the way through the judicial proceedings of a church because they just wouldn't listen to you on sexual sin. And now all of a sudden, four months later, six months later, they're producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, forget it. I'm not letting them back in. You got to be kidding me. See, that's what, that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is about. No, 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 no. Hey, we all hurt with that, and we all let them back in because how much did Jesus have to hurt on the cross for you to be restored and for you to be saved, for you to have salvation? The cross of Calvary is your witness. When he is weak, when you are weak, he is strong, and his weakness on the cross is how we get to the strength in the body of Christ, which takes us all the way to our text for today. And we're just going to read it with commentary because I don't think there's any way to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 through chapter 13, verse 11 without all that backdrop. I don't think it makes a lick of sense. So listen to it like that. And I didn't expect you could remember all that from previous sermons and days gone by. So I just wanted to build that so that next week makes more sense when we come back together. Listen to 2 Corinthians 13. Because the way that, or 2 Corinthians 12, 21 through 13, 11. Because the way that this sermon is outlined is this final step of warnings, the judicial proceedings, the witness calling, that we don't want to even have. Because the purpose of the warnings, verses 2 through 5, is to never get to that point. And our hope in prayer and offering warnings that you repent of your sin is that we get to maturity without ever having to have judicial proceedings in the church. That's the hope. But it can never be totally off the table. But the hope is you never have to use it. So listen to the text this way. Chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn, cry over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. 
Repentant of what? Particularly of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. I already planted the church. He'd been there a year and a half. He's going to come again. The first time he came to plant the church in joy. The second time he came crying with them because people wouldn't repent. He's been patient, loving. He says, I'm coming again. He says, this time, every charge has to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others as the apostles are shifting this authority to the membership of the church, I believe. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. When I come again, I won't spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, among you all. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. <coughs> Verse 5, long before it becomes a judicial proceeding. Won't you examine yourself? Won't you test yourself to see that you're in the faith? Well, what's the test? The test is, do you have faith and have you repented of your sin? Are you willing to turn from your sexual sin? Not that you've never made a mistake. Not that you won't make a mistake. The question is, are you so thick-headed that you won't turn from it? Or when confronted with your sin, will you turn from it? That's the question. The test is, will you repent of known sin? That's the test. Are you repentant? Will you turn from sin? Commentators almost universally agree that the test is repentance. So I ask you today, before we read these last verses and close this thing down, do you have sin in your life that you need to repent of? Especially of the sexual variety. And my question for you is, will you repent of it before you put the church in a painful situation to have to, to tell you to do it with the whole group? Would you just self-examine and repent instead of hurting the church's feelings and putting us in a position where we have to decide whether to be harsh or disobedient? See, that's the beauty is it never gets there. And, and, and listen, it's even better if it's one witness with one brother or sister and that takes care of the thing. And then you don't have to bring two and three. You don't have to come before the church. You don't have to do all that. That's the hope. We don't ever want to have Deuteronomy 19 apply to Matthew chapter 18 and 16, apply to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, apply to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we hope. We don't ever want to go through that. We want you to be restored right where you are without ever having to get to the point to where you're just sticking it in Jesus. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Friends, it would be better to be a wee little flock that cares than a great big bloated cancerous flock that's not really a flock at all that doesn't care. Don't you see? The Apostle Paul is putting the accent here because Jesus put the accent here. And he says, verse 5, straightway through, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus is in you? He's already in there. Unless you haven't repented, unless you failed to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, the apostles, the leaders of the church, the members in our case. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, presumably continuing to sexual sin, sexually sin. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that you may do right, though we may seem to have failed to come to you again. I told you earlier, verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth. We only do for the truth. That's what the apostles' witness is. We're glad when we are weak, and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for, we mourn for, we cry for. That's what we want. We don't want judicial proceedings in the church. We don't want the last resort of the church. We want your restoration through your voluntary repentance because you self-examined and we never had to get there. Verse 10 says it best. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come to you in person, I may not have to be severe, curt, harsh, 
in the use of my authority. The authority that God the Lord has given to me, and I think to us, based on everything we talked about today, for building up and not for tearing down. It's the, it's the Lord Jesus' building project, and he brings us all together in his final greetings. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice at this assurance of salvation that comes from being presented as mature in Christ, from growing, from pursuing holiness. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace with one another. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, this text today is a warning for the complacent. And it is, it is a hard text for those of you that are sensitive, soft, bothered by hard teachings. I'm not trying to get anyone in this room to doubt their salvation. That's not what I'm trying to do. The Lord is with you if you are repentant and a faith-based person. But I want to tell you this. God will not be mocked. And if you fit in the category of people that thinks that you're getting one over on God and you're just going to sin how you want to sin and he's never going to catch me, I want you to understand something on the authority of the word of God. He will not be mocked and you will face the judgment seat of Christ. It's our job to get you there before it's eternally too late. You understand? The saints must persevere to the end. And you're not persevering to the end if you're in wanton lusts and sexual immorality, shaming the name of Jesus while at the same time claiming to, to profess him and praise him. We must deal with that sin. That's what texts like this is about for us. It's about the witness of Jesus. And I want you to know the best news of all is that Jesus went to the cross to give you the resources to do this. He's the God of the impossible. And the same as Jesus was weak when he hung on that cross and rose in power, are you weak when you come to the cross with your sin? And he gives you resurrection power, the power of the whole we to fight against your sin and to come out the other side. That's what a beautiful bride, a body of Christ looks like. That's what my prayer is that we will be. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us. Help us to heed the warnings without losing your grace. Help us to be your people without harping on sins aside from mercy. Help us like you to demonstrate parental care with a vision for the maturity of the saints and at the very same time not let the leaven of unrepentant sin work through the entire lump and shame the witness and provide a lack of opportunity for restoration for wayward brothers that desperately need strong parenting. Help us to be your church and to help others to be your church. Not in a comparison and contrast kind of way with other churches, Lord, but in a loving way that if we found something about what your word says about how to be church, that we would be salt and light in such a way it would be inspiring, that we might all be found faithful to build your church your way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, let's stand and sing together. I ask the Lord that I might grow.